Welcome back to Home of the Brave. I'm Scott Carrier. Photographer Alan Chin was on the show over a year ago talking about the siege of the U.S. Capitol. He's now recently returned from covering the war in Ukraine, taking photos and writing stories for Insider, an online business magazine. I gave him a few days to settle in after he got back home to New York City, and then I called him to find out what it was like over there. He said when he arrived in Ukraine two weeks before the war started, there were 190,000 Russian troops on the border surrounding the country. And Russian President Vladimir Putin was saying it was just a military exercise. He had no intention of invading Ukraine. When Alan asked people he met if they thought there was going to be a war, they all said, what do you mean? We've been at war since 2014 when Russia took Crimea and people in Luhansk and Donetsk along the Russian border started fighting to separate from Ukraine. They've been shooting and shelling ever since. So Alan decided to go there, to Luhansk and Donetsk. I went down there, and we were actually checking out a town where they had been shelled that morning and also a few days before. And while we were there to check out what had happened, um, the shelling started again, right? And, you know, um, that's pretty serious to be coming under artillery fire. Um, and But so after that, I decided, okay, you know, I don't really want to be stuck here if it really starts, if it really gets worse. You know, you're in the most vulnerable part of the country, in a sense. So I got on the road. The day before the war started, I drove to Kiev. And... You know, it was very eerie feeling driving on the highway. Not because it was weird. You know, there were regular it was, cars and trucks were on the highway. It didn't. If you had just looked at it, you wouldn't thought anything was weird. But the kind of state of mind I was in, I felt like this is what it must have felt to drive across Czechoslovakia in 1968 or something like that, right? You uh -huh. know, to, to 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 be driving across the country on on at a moment where it looks like they could be invaded. And I got to Kiev, and I... Um, well, wait, how did that make you feel? Sorry. It made me feel kind of very surreal, but also very, very scared. I, I, I'm i not afraid to admit, you know. Oh. Yeah, I, I was just filled with this foreboding and, and sense of really Im imminent catastrophe, you know, imminent horror. And you were in Kiev when it... How did you know when the war had started? So, so actually, Elizabeth, who is the mother of, of our child, called me. Um, it was 5 a.m. Kiev time, and she woke me up, um, and she said, you know, it started. Uh, are you hearing anything? And I said, no, I actually haven't heard anything. <laughs> and this might be kind of darkly funny. I actually went back to sleep for about half an hour. Huh. Um, yeah, when in that first day. So, so finally I did think, okay, I, I took a shower, I woke up, and I thought, okay, I have to go out and see what goes on. You know, so we kind of cruised around that first morning and, and just to see what was going on. We could see there were a lot of cars on the road leaving the city, and we could see that um, the train station slowly but steadily started to get crowded. And at the bus station, at least the one bus station we went to, um, they closed it down. We saw the last bus that was packed leaving, and they said, no, there won't be any more buses from here. The people were nervous, or what were the... The Ukrainians in Kiev. Like. And that first that first day, it was almost like 
Yeah, I'm not. I I would say the few people that we did come across and kind of talk to were just angry, um, and I think that's an anger that has persisted and only grown um, as this war has continued. Um, but most people, I think, were just quite surprised that it re- was really happening, and that's something I think that probably will never go away. This sense of utter shock that this would actually really, really happen, right? That. <sighs> You know, and I think that's true for Ukrainians as much as it's true for Americans. Um, and again, that first day, there were the rockets and, and missiles had hit on the outskirts of Kiev, um, but not in the city center, not yet. There was only one missile that landed in Kiev, downtown Kiev, and it wasn't a big one. No one was killed. But we were hearing reports that the Russians had attacked and had landed soldiers at an airport that was only about 10, 15 miles northwest of the city. And that actually did worry me because that meant, oh, if they're that close, then maybe their plan could work, right? Maybe they are going to surround the city. If you look at the map, they could come from different angles and they could surround Kiev and they would want to take it over fast. You know, that was pretty frightening to me. I didn't want to be caught in a Russian trap. And so I left and joined basically that exodus of cars heading west. I basically did this very slow journey westward. You know, I had this car and I kept filling it up with gas. And so I stopped in all these different towns and cities in Vinitsa and then Ternopil um, and then finally getting to Lviv. You've been to other war zones. You've worked in other many other war zones. How is the situation or the feeling in Ukraine different than what you've seen in other places? I would say that this is the first war I've been to, and probably anybody alive or, you know, in in almost, uh, other than the people that are old enough to have lived through the Second World War. This is a war between two advanced nation states with advanced infrastructure. Russia is much bigger than Ukraine, of course, but Ukraine has its own military-industrial complex. It has its own arms industry. It has its own tech sector that's actually really big and, and burgeoning. Um, and one of the leading uh, or growing industries in Ukraine is a kind of Eastern European Silicon Valley. Like pretty much every other person you talk to is in some kind of IT. Ukraine also borders all these friendly countries like Poland and Hungary and um, Slovakia and Romania, which are all NATO countries across which all these supplies and weapons are now coming. None of the other places I've been where I covered war or or conflict had that. Iraq, which was also, you know, a, a very modern society in some ways, but it was a dictatorship under Saddam, it certainly had no close friends that were next to it that were willing to supply them with weapons and and oil and and food and, you know, everything, you know, the moment that the U.S. invaded, right? There was was nothing like that in in a place like Iraq. There wasn't even anything like that in the Balkans because those, A, are much smaller countries, and B, those were kind of wars of independence. Bosnia was not yet a country. It was becoming a country. Kosovo was not yet a country. It was becoming a country. Um, And, you know, where Serbia was the more established country that was trying to tamp them down. And so some people compare that. They say, well, Russia is the more established country trying to tamp down Ukraine. 
yes, that's true in a way, but Ukraine has had, especially in these last eight years, um, a really vibrant, truly democratic system with, uh, you know, a lot of political and economic reform and, and at least some innovation and technical advance. I bet you know a lot about the history of Ukraine and Russia and the differences in the culture, if there are any. Yeah. Because the claim is, like, we're our own co- country. We have our own culture. And yeah, Russia's, so, so this is really talk about crucial. Right. This is a really crucial element of understanding this debate, um, or not debate, but this war. Um, Putin has made the point that Ukraine isn't really it's a real country, that it's really part of Russia. Um, and, you know, historically, of course, they are neighbors and they are very intertwined. Most Ukrainians are, are bilingual in both Russian and Ukrainian, even if there's one that they're more comfortable with than the other. You know, there are actually, the estimate I read is that there are 11 million Russians and Ukrainians with family on the other side, right? There's so many families where they were intermarried, you know, and, and for, for the from 1920 around until 1991, Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union, uh, as was Russia. So I think in the Soviet times, people thought of Ukraine the way that people in the U.S. might think of states, you know, even the ones that are more separate. Like California, for example, has a very distinct identity. That being said, the moment that independence came, it became real. And I think this is one of Putin's delusions and mistakes, is that in his mind, it's still 1988, and Ukraine is part of the Soviet Union, and, you know, really, it's his job, he thinks, to kind of rebuild it, or to rebuild some version of it. And all all the things that happened with Gorbachev and Yeltsin were mistakes and that Russia needs to be a great power, and it needs to, you know, have all the parts of it that it once had. And and that's really, you know, Putin himself says that. It's not a secret. Um, But this is where he comes up against reality, and reality is that Ukraine has been independent now for 30 years and has developed, especially in these last eight years, a very strong identity, not just of being independent, but of being, you know, pro-Western, of being technologically advanced, of um, being reformist, you know, trying to clean up some of that corruption. There's still a long way to go, for sure, right? Like, Ukraine, just like Russia, has a class of oligarchs, you know, these very rich men who control huge sectors of the economy, and that leads to a lot of corruption. There's no question that a lot of those things are still true. But that doesn't mean that it's not a country, right? That doesn't mean that it doesn't have its own culture, which it does. Um, What about, I was in Armenia for a couple weeks, a couple years ago, and even though the people wanted to be part of the European Union, it seemed like they still loved Russian culture, arts, literature, music, and the language. I think what's really interesting in Ukraine is that that has been almost entirely decoupled. People for whom Russian is their first language, and the language, uh, which by the way includes Zelensky himself, right? Um, But people for whom Russian is their first language and who love Russian literature and movies and, and, and culture, 
and indeed may have a grandmother, um, you know, or, 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 or mother um, in Russia, have been able these last eight years to decouple that cultural closeness with political and national identity. And I think the best thing to compare that to is the Swiss uh, Germans and the Germans, or the Germans and the Austrians, right? Two world wars were fought, but at this point, I think Austrians feel perfectly happy being Austrian and Germans are German, and they both speak the German language with some tiny minor differences, right? But they share the same literature and movies, and the same is also true for the French, right? The, the French uh, in Switzerland and the French uh, speaking in Belgium and the French speaking in Quebec in Canada and the French speaking in Haiti and the French speaking in France are all citizens of different countries, right? Yeah. And no, nobody is trying to recreate the French empire. We're all okay with that. And I think yeah. Ukrainians have gotten there. Putin obviously hasn't. But I think the Ukrainians themselves have gotten there. They are perfectly comfortable sharing a lot of language and culture without that meaning that they also have to share political identity. Okay, so let's go back to where you left Kiev and drove to Lviv. What stories did you work on there? Um, so once I was in Lviv, I actually made some good connections and I did a story on the railroads of Ukraine. Like I said, it's actually, depending on how you count, it's the sixth or seventh largest railroad in the world and it has over 200,000 workers. They've, at this point, moved the majority of the over 2 million people that have left Ukraine or you know have, have gone to safer parts of Ukraine from areas under attack. The majority of those people have traveled by train. And this is an incredible story, right? Because they have kept those trains running. And again, this is very different from what happened in Iraq, for example, right? Once Saddam's government collapsed, all kinds of services collapsed. Well, here's a case where the government is not collapsing and, um, and services are maintained. And so I, I spent a day with the leadership of the railroad. And because they know that they would be targets of the Russians, they're constantly on the move, right? They're always on the move. They're on board different trains, but at any different time, they, at any given time, they might be on a train that's moving close to 100 miles an hour across the country from one point to another. And they do this not only because of security, they told me, but because they need their 200,000 workers to know that as the leaders of the railroad, that they haven't run away huh. or that they're not hiding in a bunker, right? They need to visit, um, you know, because railroad workers have been killed. Uh, sections of track have been bombed. Stations have been damaged, right? You know, they're under this enormous stress and they're also moving, again, this enormous number of people to safety. So if you're the leadership team, it's this incredibly stressful job because, you know, they would get reports. You know, we have 30,000 people stuck in Kharkiv. We need to get them out. How are we going to do it? Someone sends them a photo. Has a bomb that landed right next to a track. You know, we've got to close down that section until we can get that dealt with, Right. It's it was really amazing just to get a a um, just to watch them do this. What about the you did a, a story about the postal service too? And again, the postal service amazingly um, is uh, responsible for delivering cash pensions to three and a half million senior citizens in Ukraine. So the mail carrier will come to your door 
and will give you in cash your pension and you just sign for it they'll also bring you your mail of course and they'll also bring you um, food that you can buy at a subsidized price and since COVID they can also bring you your prescriptions from the pharmacy medication so the post office is really a lifeline for especially these three and a half million senior citizens but with the war starting of course they got disrupted and so for 10 days they couldn't deliver anything and what they did is they set up a hotline because a lot of people have been fleeing they can't deliver it to your to your address because you're not there anymore so they basically put out the word call the hotline let us know where you are and we will bring it to you there so senior citizens have been able to call this hotline and let the post office know I'm, I'm not in place a anymore i'm now in place b and the guy who runs the post office he's an amazing his name is igor Smolensky, and he actually spent 10 years in in new york he went to pace university he worked at Cantor fitzgerald which was the company um he worked in the world trade center on the 101st floor but he had just quit not long before 9 11 to go to law school and over 600 of his former co-workers were killed on 9-11 so he avoided dying on 9-11 just because he had quit not that long before wow. and um, he had also actually lived in Moscow so he'd spent all this time in America and even Russia and um, but as part of these reforms you know where Ukraine has been trying to improve services and put a lid on corruption people like him have been hired they've been recruiting people who speak English or, or other languages who've been educated abroad who bring you know some of these expertise and um, so that's the CEO of the post office, right? Wow. The CEO of the railroad is a fascinating guy. His name is Alexander Kamishin, and he has his hair in this kind of Viking uh, tail uh, haircut, right? And, 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 you know, he really looks like a warlord, right? He's all in black. He's a tall guy. He, you know, speaks English. He did his postgraduate work in France. Um, you know, his director of passenger operations spent years working in Singapore, right? These are guys that would not be out of place at any international, um, you know, kind of business meeting or, or social gathering, right? If you run into these people um, at, at, at the restaurant down the street, you wouldn't think twice. You would, huh. you would, you know, you would say, oh, which, which, what do you recommend? The white or the rosé, right? You know, huh. like, like these are, these are, and, and, you know, obviously, there's much to in normal time in peacetime there's much to criticize too right because these guys you know want to privatize things more right they maybe want to um get rid of workers and use more technology and then what do we do with the workers right you know it's the same story around the world i'm not i'm not saying these guys are perfect but in this moment it's been really interesting how these guys are working hand in hand with the more old school guys that came out of of the old fashioned, you know, more bureaucratic system. And you see both those worlds in Ukraine. You see you see the new Ukraine, the, the Ukraine that, you know, wants to be more part of, you know, the EU and, 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 and the West, and the old Ukraine, you know, which is set kind of in its ways. And for the moment they're very united. So it's really kind of interesting to see that too. So in the US like the last time we talked, you just covered the siege on the Capitol, the division of cultural division in the United States. So when you're around these guys and they're all working together, what's it feel uh, like? Because you live in a country that's pretty much divided where people don't get along here. I'll say, and this might sound funny, 
so I'm a Chinese American, as I've alluded to more than once, right? Yep. And I will tell you this: when I see what's happening in Ukraine, I am personally reminded of what my parents told me about how China reacted in the 1930s when Japan invaded China in an aggressive war, and and, and as part of what became the Second World War, right? Of course, it wasn't all completely true, but there was a mythology built around it, right? A, a, a narrative of national resistance, national unity of fighting Japan and the great sacrifices that everyone did. And I think you see that in Ukraine right now. You see that in this, you know, creating these territorial defense units where they're giving rifles to anybody that wants one almost, where they're telling ordinary people just to make gasoline bombs, right? They are going to the wall on this. They are all in. And I think that is, again, something that Putin miscalculated, but even Biden miscalculated. You know, this famous line now where Zelensky says to them, you know, I need ammunition, not a ride. And that is something that obviously has has become like one of the great memes of this war. But it's also the kind of thing that builds a kind of national myth, right? Of of uh, of one that unites people, um, you know. Of course, will it last if this war lasts, goes on and on and on, and doesn't end? You know, will that unity in, inevitably fracture? Of course, it will. But for the moment, it's pretty strong. Do you think that the Ukrainians have a chance of winning the war? Yeah. So I, you know, everything I, reading the reading all the analyses on this has been fascinating for me. Because at the beginning, it was the Russians are going to win, but, you know, it's going to just still suck, right? And then it went from that to, oh, the Russians are not having such an easy time. And then it went from that to, oh, the Russians are not having such an easy time, but they're still going to win because they're so much bigger and so much more powerful. And then it went from that to, oh, but, you know, the only thing that will save this is if the Russians have a revolution or if the oligarchs or the generals remove Putin... And, you know, you can you just open any newspaper right now and you'll read some version of all of the above. And mm-hmm. you'll read very little version of what I'm about to say that the Russians could just lose because their army is so terrible that the and the Ukrainians, as I'm saying for the moment, are so unified and are getting help from the Americans that they might just win. They might just, you know, literally win because what happens, you know, we were talking about what happens if the Russians, you know, encircle... Kiev or, or, or cut off other parts of, you know, Ukraine and, you know, all this stuff. Well, actually, what happens if the Ukrainians do that to them, right? They surround the people who are surrounding the city. They have Exactly. They what sur- if, just today, we have the first reports of, of some kind of Ukrainian counterattack. There's not a lot of details, but, but even that they're even talking about that, even if it's limited, suggests that, like, yeah, the Russians might still be this giant, but if the guys that you're attacking are already counterattacking, even in a small way, even just to straighten out the lines and, and, you know, rescue like a vulnerable position or something, you know, even if it's like that, then this is not, you know, yeah, right? And we have all those accounts of Russian units deserting and surrendering, running out of gas, using walkie-talkies that they buy at Walmart, um, you know, They've had three generals actually killed in combat, which actually says something. It says some good things in that they have generals who are forward enough to get killed. And so usually armies with generals that get killed are actually usually very good armies. 
armies where the generals don't get killed usually are bad armies, but in this case, it seems to be both. I could see a scenario, and I also, yes, Russia does have this enormous army, but I don't see Russia being able to mobilize its own reserves without triggering some kind of revolution, right? Like, if you're like some 28-year-old guy in Siberia with your normal job, and you're a reserve guy, and now they call you up, are you going to want to go? Huh. Right? You know, yeah. I I don't see how that could go easily, or at least easily, or at least without like a level of unrest. And we have already seen them, you know, imprison people now for dissent, you know, for for anti-war protests, right? Yeah. Um, and again, it's easy to arrest ten thousand protesters, you know, these hippies, you know, fuck them. But what do you yeah. do with like, yeah, your average Joe who is a reservist, and now you're telling him he has to he has to be mobilized, and you're sending him to Ukraine? That's a different story than just some anti-war hippies. Then finally, you know, we hear the news that they're recruiting guys in Syria, you know, to come and fight. And wait a minute, why are they doing that? Well, of course, it's they can be maybe less accountable if these mercenaries behave badly. But also, I think it suggests that they might not have enough guys. Like, if they need to recruit guys from Syria, does that mean that either they don't trust their own Russian guys or they don't have enough of them? So I think in a lot of ways, Russia is not as powerful as we thought it was on paper. I I, I mean, I'm not sure. Not only can the Russians um, not win, I think there's at least a small but real chance that they could just lose, period. You know, if a Russian military force of some size, let's say 50,000 soldiers, is actually surrounded and all forced to surrender, that's the end of the war. I mean, that's like, even Putin would have to sign a peace deal in which he says, okay, guys, I'm sorry, you know, me bad. You're going to go back? I'm going to go back um, because I actually am really interested in, like I said, not so much the frontline stuff, although I shouldn't say that, not good, because sometimes the frontline comes to you, right? You don't sometimes yeah. have to go to the frontline. The frontline comes to you. You have to be very kind of smart and cautious and careful about that. Um, but my interest is actually on, on this kind of infrastructure stuff, right? I did a story in the post office. I did a story in the trains. I want to continue working on those things. What keeps a society functioning at war? You know, what about oil and gas? You know, what about money? Who's putting money in the ATMs where they are still able to? You know, the phone company, right? In, in, in the areas of Ukraine that are not under direct attack, um, you know, the electricity is still on and the phones are working and the internet still works. And again, not perfectly, but most of it is still working. And so who are the people keeping all that working? Groceries, even. All these little things that keep a society going. And it's when you lose those things, that daily life for average people, even in areas that are not on the front line, that's when life becomes really hard, right? Like, it's really important to hear those voices. It's really important um, that we get a picture about that, how people react under stress and, and how they're able to keep doing their jobs, or not able. Um, my last story that I did was on the train leaving the country. It was a 12-hour train ride to go just about 50 miles. But I realized, of course, you know, some of these people have no idea. You know, they're coming from towns and cities that are being bombed, and they don't know if they're ever going to be able to go home, right? Um, huh. Or if they, or when they do, what they'll discover, you know? 
you realize you're in the middle of witnessing what for, for people is a life-changing, life, really life-changing thing and usually not for the better. And um, that's the hard. That actually is hard without being too sentimental about it. That, that part is hard once you think about it. I wouldn't have left when I did if I didn't have an eight-year-old daughter who I feel also very responsible to, um, yeah. more responsible to. And, but yeah, I, I think I kind of want to see where this goes a little bit more. I'm not ready to let go yet of it, either professionally or personally. All right. Thanks a lot. All right. That's really good. You've been listening to an interview with photographer, foreign correspondent, Alan Chin. On our website, homebrave.com, there are some of Alan's photos and a link to the series he wrote for Insider. It's an excellent series, the kind of photojournalism you used to see in the New York Times Magazine. You should check it out. As you know, I've been taking a break, but I don't think this is the time to talk about that or my plans. For now, I just want to say thanks to Alan and thank you for listening. <laughs>